Last year, attorney Margaret Hellerstein received some unexpected news about her client who was in custody with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a.k.a. ICE. So February 22nd, I received a call from ICE letting me know they were considering releasing him. Her client, Martin Vargas Arellano, was likely going to be set free from a detention center in San Bernardino County. But after that notice, Margaret heard nothing. He didn't call me, nobody called me. She eventually had to file a missing persons report to try and track down Martin. We called homeless shelters, police stations. And that's when she found out something disturbing. The officer said, oh, he was released on March 5th. Ice had released him to a hospital while he was comatose. And then he died. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, May 20th, 2022. Today, we dive into ICE's disturbing practice of releasing detainees on the verge of death. My colleague Andrea Castillo covers immigration for The Times. Andrea, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me, Gustavo. So Martin Vargas Arellano, who was he? So Martin was a 55-year-old immigrant from Mexico. He had come to the U.S. when he was three, and he was applying for a status that's similar to asylum. His lawyer, Margaret, she said he's pretty reserved. He was a quiet guy. He was very polite. You know, the one thing he kept saying over and over pre-COVID is, I'm tired, ma'am, I'm so tired. And he said he just wanted to live a quiet life. He also had a bunch of illnesses. He had diabetes, hepatitis C, hypertension. Cellulitis, gout. Arthritis and schizophrenia. He looked a lot older than his age. He was disabled. He used a wheelchair a lot of the time. And even while he was detained, he was frequently in and out of the hospital. So a lot of 2020, I was really unable to contact him because he would go to the hospital for cellulitis and then he would come back and have to be quarantined for two weeks. So I don't know how much time he even spent in his dorm. He was usually just handcuffed to a bed in a hospital somewhere or essentially in solitary confinement. So Martin was convicted in 1985 of committing lewd or lascivious acts with a minor under 14 when he was also underage. He was picked up for a number of petty crimes over the years, including theft. And he'd been in ICE custody since April of 2019. Margaret told me that after he had a psychotic break, he had failed to register as a sex offender for the first time ever. So he had never had legal status. He was brought to the U.S. when he was three, and he was never eligible for any legal status. And especially after he got into trouble, that was just not going to happen. And Margaret said the detention really took a toll on him. She was worried that he would die if he didn't get out. And so she made all these requests for Martin's release based on his health conditions. A federal judge actually ordered his release early on in the pandemic, but then his housing fell through. And so by the time that Margaret could secure new housing for him, other litigation was preventing his release. And while ICE detained Martin, how was he treated? He actually contracted COVID-19 in December of 2020. When he first came down with symptoms, he had 
shortness of breath, burning lungs, fever, dry cough, and a loss of taste and smell. Three months later, an ICE agent told Margaret that the agency was actually considering releasing Martin. And I was obviously very excited to hear that. So she started making arrangements for a driver to come pick him up and take him to a halfway house. I gave the officer that information. I didn't hear from them for a couple of days. I called the officer back, the one who had said they were considering releasing him. And the guy said something about the higher ups, which is what they always say, and that they weren't sure at that point about releasing him. The next time I heard from them, they called me saying that he was going into surgery and they asked me about next of kin and I asked them, you know, do I need to be concerned? What's going on? And they said, no, no, everything's fine. But what she didn't know was that ICE had actually released him in a hospital and that his health was declining fast. I remember one of the last times that we spoke on the phone, he said that he could barely even sit up to speak on the phone. He had to end the call. On March 3rd, Martin suffered a stroke and he fell into a coma. He died March 8th of 2021, three days after he was released from ICE custody and while he was on life support. So I was waiting to hear from them about his release. He didn't call me, nobody called me. 10 days went by before Margaret learned of Martin's death. She had to file a missing persons report and call the coroner's office. I had people helping me call hospitals in the area. We called homeless shelters, police stations. I put in a missing persons report. I started to suspect that he had passed away. The following day, I called the Orange County Coroner's Office, and they confirmed that he had passed away at that hospital in Orange County on March 8th. We'll be right back. So Andrea, Martin Vargas Arellano died at a nearby hospital right after ICE released him from their detention facility. How did that come about? So a court-appointed investigation into his death led to this scathing special master's report last July that was about the actions of ICE, Arelanto, and the contracted healthcare provider, WellPath. The report says that the decision to release Martin when he was near death resulted in him being moved off the books at ICE and Arelanto. The report says that because ICE released him to a hospital, all three of those entities were relieved of their obligations to report his death. And it says, quote, this seems to have been the sole purpose of the release, unquote. I talked to a doctor who specializes in correctional health care, Dr. Mark Stern. He previously served as an expert for DHS's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, which investigates detention complaints. And Dr. Stern told me that it could be more fiscally responsible to release someone from custody who's hospitalized. That way, the government can avoid spending taxpayer money to staff guards to oversee a hospitalized detainee. And they'll also avoid paying medical bills that some hospitals would already cover for low-income patients. While they are under the auspices of the correctional or detention facility, that facility is responsible for paying for their, their hospital bill and their doctor's bills, whereas 
if they've released them, they now become the responsibility of the community in whatever way they had of paying, whether it's insurance or out of pocket. But Dr. Stern said that releasing sick detainees could also be potentially politically motivated. One of the advantages of doing that is that they no longer have to report that death. That death no longer accrues to them, is no longer something that is on their list. I started recording in-custody deaths in 2009 during a bunch of reforms in the Obama administration. That same year, ICE officials admitted to omitting one in 10 detainee deaths in a list that the agency had delivered to Congress. And then in 2018, Congress started requiring ICE to publicly release reports on every in-custody death within 90 days. Dr. Stern told me that even though some deaths aren't preventable, all deaths should be reportable when you're talking about somebody whose health has deteriorated under ICE's watch. We have to understand that some of them are avoidable and some of them are not. But if we're going to report them all, we have to report them all. So what are our advocacy groups doing in response to these deaths? So last year, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit. They wanted records about the deaths of people who were released from custody while they're hospitalized. And in that lawsuit, the ACLU names Martin and four other people. And the thing is, ICE has consistently claimed that fewer than a dozen detainees die in custody every year. Those recorded deaths have remained low even during the pandemic. ICE reported a high of 21 deaths in 2020 and just five deaths for all of 2021. And they've reported no deaths so far in 2022. How has ICE responded to all of this? So ICE isn't saying much. They declined to comment on Martin's case and all of the other cases that we looked into. But a spokeswoman said the agency takes the health, safety, and welfare of the people in its care really seriously. She also said that the agency's policy around reviewing detainee deaths was updated last October. And that policy now includes the option to review deaths that happen within a month of someone's release from custody when that's appropriate. We'll be back after this quick break. Andrea, you mentioned the ACLU lawsuit that names Martin and four other people. What do we know about their stories? So we've found several other cases, including the others that are mentioned in the lawsuit. One of those cases is 25-year-old Johanna Medina Leon, who spent years advocating for the LGBTQ community and HIV awareness before she fled violence as a transgender woman herself in El Salvador. She was a nurse technician, and she hoped to start a new life in California. So I talked to her friend Alexia Sanchez. She said that she met Johanna at a gathering around eight or nine years ago. They met while they were organizing around human rights. Alexia described Johanna as this fun, friendly person, a total problem solver. She said that she would amp up the other activists who were in their group because she had this uncanny ability to say the right thing at the right time. Uh, 
But just over a month after she was detained by ICE and booked into the Otero County Processing Center in New Mexico, her health started declining quickly. She was transferred to an El Paso hospital where she died on June 1st, 2019. Johanna's name wasn't among the nine deaths that were recorded by ICE that year, though. She had been released from custody while she was hospitalized four days before she died. And she eventually succumbed to the same failures in medical care that she had worked so hard to prevent for others. What are some of the other stories that you uncovered? So except for Johanna, the other three people who are named in the lawsuit were people who, like Mark Martin, had been released from ICE custody while they were in comas and died a few days later. I discovered during the reporting process is someone who had attempted suicide at the Adelanto facility in the Inland Empire, and he ended up on life support. ICE released him from custody afterward while he was hospitalized, and he still remains on life support today. ICE, when these things happen, they're not exactly broadcasting all of this. So how were you able to find the stories? Yeah, so all of the circumstances surrounding Johanna's release and her death were discovered among more than 16,000 pages of documents that were disclosed as part of this lawsuit that we brought against the Department of Homeland Security. We've been seeking records of abuse at immigration detention centers. And her case was investigated by the Office of Inspector General, which is a watchdog agency that oversees ICE. And as we were reading those documents, we found out that Johanna had gone from 126 pounds to 103 pounds in the short period that she was detained. She had made several requests to be seen by a doctor, and she complained of stomach pain, vomiting, and nausea. She had even developed a rash on her forehead. But nurses had only given her antacids, and they chalked up her condition to spicy food at the facility. A nurse flagged her case as serious and jotted down this list of symptoms that included weakness, a sore throat, cough, and acid reflux. And she referred Johanna to Otero's on-call nurse practitioner, but that visit actually never happened. He told investigators that he hadn't been alerted about her case, and he later said that he felt someone should have called him. In court depositions, nurses who treated Johanna said that at the time, Otero relied on this paper system to refer detainees' medical requests to providers. And under that system, one staffer testified that it could take a couple days for a provider to respond to a referral. And so by the time that Johanna saw a doctor on May 27th of 2019, her skin had yellowed, her temperature was fluctuating, and her heart rate was slowing. Staff ordered an HIV test at the time, and the next day it came back positive. But by then she was dizzy and she was complaining of chest pains. And so staff called an ambulance and rushed her to a medical facility in El Paso. We reviewed emails that showed immigration officials moved quickly to remove Johanna from custody. ICE's field medical coordinator started this rapid fire process on May 28th, recommending that Johanna be released from Otero. The official wrote in an email that if she was to become further seriously ill, there was a potential for a poor outcome. And the official also noted that she was so underweight. So within hours of her arriving to the hospital, two ICE agents arrived and gave her parole paperwork to sign. 
one of the agents later told investigators that he knew the process was being rushed, but he wasn't aware for the reasons for that. He said that he had never served parole documents at a hospital before. So four days later, Johanna was dead. And her death certificate says that she died of sepsis with pneumonia and HIV as underlying causes. But healthcare experts that we spoke to said deaths like hers are avoidable. How did her family and friends react when they learned about the details of her death? So they were understandably distraught. Her parents declined to be interviewed, but her longtime friend Alexia said that it was a really tough blow to find out Johanna had died. And she found out right around the same time that Alexia herself made it to the U.S. to seek asylum. Alexia told me that she found out about Johanna's death four or five months after the fact. She said that she was so surprised she almost couldn't believe it. A friend had told her. And she said, what? How is it possible that someone looking for the American dream could end up with bad things happening to them? And she said that all she and Johanna and other women like them are looking for is for their rights and their lives to be recognized. Andrea, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. Be sure to tune in for a special feature, the L.A. mayoral debate, presented by L.A. Times and KCRW and moderated by yours truly and KCRW reporter Anna Scott. The debate focuses on a major issue in Los Angeles, housing and the homeless. Really, it's a national issue, but since the mayoral debate, we're going to do it here. Check it out on latimes.com slash L.A. Mayor Debate at 6 p.m. Pacific or tune in next week at The Times to catch our episode with debate highlights. Shannon Lynn was a hef on this episode and Mark Nieto mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Tasha Brasalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Amy Carreras. Our editorial assistants are Madeline Amato and Carlos de Loera. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this matter. Gracias.